Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Sharon, and here's where it gets interesting. Raise your hand if you want salon perfect nails for just $2 a manicure. Yeah, me too. With the Alvin June Manny system, you can say goodbye to expensive services that take hours and hours and love your nails more than ever. I would know I've been doing it for years. Get 20% off your first Manny system with code PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. That's PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Hello, Chris. Good to talk again. Today, I'd like to discuss some Irish issues and also some housing-related issues with a bit of global and domestic resonance. Uh, First of all, I just want to summarise some of the key points of the Irish census results that were published last week and over the coming months we will be treated to a lot of census reports being published on various things so it's it's a mine of information and in fact you could spend two years of your life I think analysing all the stuff we're going to see out of the census over the coming months but anyway the preliminary stuff we've got last week I think makes for interesting reading and discussion so I want to talk about that secondly I've been following an evolving story in Sydney it's been reported every morning in the Sydney Morning Herald about the housing crisis in Sydney and what's been proposed and the sort of reaction to that the, the key reason why I want to talk about this really is in the context of the Irish housing challenges. Just to say we ain't alone. And a third piece I want to talk about is there was a report published in the last couple of weeks by a group called Eurofund. It's related to home ownership rates across the across Europe. So I want to talk about that and also sort of talk about that in the context of what's going on in Ireland. Okay, if I may start with the census piece. The census was a year late this time because of COVID. Um, So the data that's reported relate to April 2022. The the population went over 5.1 million in April 22. And that's the first time in about 175 or six years that the population has been over 5 million in this country. So that is significant. And just to put it in context, um, in 1961, 
we had a population of 2.8 million, now up at 5.1 million. That's an, e- an increase of 82.7%. And even over the last couple of intercensal periods, there has been strong growth. Okay, so between the last census in 2016 and this one in 2022, the Irish population increased by 387,000, just over 387,000. 43% of that was due to a natural increase in the population. So in other words, the excess of births over deaths. And the 56.8% actually of the growth was due to net inward migration. That feeds back into the failed economic narrative that we've discussed so often on this if ireland is such a dystopian hellhole why in the name of god are we getting net inward migration and of course the census was in april 22 so it would have captured very few of the ukrainian refugees that have come in here since the war started and um you know a a lot of that has happened particularly in the last six months jim can i stop Um, you there can i just ask you a question you can yeah um, so in our lifetimes, uh, or my, mine anyway, I don't know about yours, the population has nearly doubled. Is that correct? That is correct. Absolutely. So if you were to posit any country um, in that kind of time span doubling its population, uh, I suspect that you would immediately have concluded that without some pretty heroic, extraordinary efforts there would have been a housing problem as a result of that. Is that a reasonable thing to say? That is a reasonable thing to say because, okay, I I cited figures from 1961 to 2022, uh, growth of 87% of their in the population. But a lot of that growth actually has happened over the last 20 years rather than the early part of that. So the, the growth in population, the dramatic expansion actually has been more concentrated than I'm suggesting. Okay, so that that certainly, you know, would suggest that um, it would have required heroic efforts by policymakers to actually cope with that sort of growth in population. And um, we didn't get heroic efforts, unfortunately. And in fact, I think we got we didn't get a lot of effort at all. And, and, you know, I'd be hugely critical and have expressed this view several times in this podcast. Um, You know, the role that NAMA played in the housing market after the crash, uh, the fact that for 11 years we effectively stopped building houses or at least we were building 30, 40,000 less per annum than we should have been building given the growth in the population and we've known about this growth in the population it hasn't come as a surprise it hasn't come as a shock so but but it does explain why we have a housing crisis and the second point i think that's really important relating to public services generally but particularly to the health sector when you get that sort of growth in population it's obviously going to put a serious pressure on the delivery of public services and of course one of the problems here is that after 2008-2009 you know we had five or six years of pretty significant um, curbing of public expenditure in areas like health and when you cut spending in areas like health in an environment where the population is continuing to grow you know that does not bode well for the outcome and, and that's indeed um, that the problems we're dealing with at the moment so uh, you know I, I take your point Chris that it would have been very difficult to actually deal with that sort of population growth but I don't think we dealt with it very well you know I, I definitely think in the area of housing 
um, there is just abject policy failure um, on an ongoing basis. Let me be clear. I'm not trying to make excuses for bad policymaking. I'm simply remarking that uh, I'm thinking of other countries, not least the UK, if it had doubled its population during that time period, which it didn't, um, it would have had an even bigger housing problem than it's got now, given the kind of uh, housing non-policies that it does have. So I'm not making excuses for poor policies. I'm just really seeking explanations uh, for why we have the problems that we do. And I think there are other reasons why we have a housing crisis in many jurisdictions, not just Ireland. But Ireland, the thing that seems to be almost unique, uh, I, I guess there are other countries in the world that also experience great population expansions. Um, I could mention several, but it, it, it isn't typically countries in the West. And uh, I'm thinking here in particular about Japan, because the one country in the developed world that really noticeably doesn't have a house price housing crisis in the way that we have in the UK, in Spain and Portugal, the United States and Canada and so many other so-called developed economies. Japan is really interesting because it's got a falling population, hasn't it? And I wonder how much of a contribution contribution that is making to its non-housing crisis. Its house prices have been stable for ages. Um, and of course, it doesn't have any inflation problems. But, you know, that's just an aside, really. Before I get on to the other interesting aspect, um, the uh, relating to housing, there's a few interesting things. I mean, the average size of the house, the Irish household is 2.74 people, OK, per private household. Um, and that's been really stable in recent years. You know, despite all we hear about um, young people having to live at home and it's undoubtedly happening uh, but the average number of people per household is remaining remarkably stable at 2.74 people. The other, I think, really interesting from a policy perspective issue of the census is what's happening, the ageing of the population. OK, the between the two intercensal periods, um, you know, we've seen the, the, the number of people aged over 85 increase from 58,416 in 2011 to 181,027 in 2022. And indeed, the over 70 segment of the population has gone from 361,700 to 538,171. So, Chris, what we're seeing is a pretty dramatic increase in the older age cohort of the population. And of course, there are two significant implications from that. One is the pressure it's going to put on the health service and the services around care for older people, particularly, you know, nursing home accommodation and so on, which is in a bit of crisis at the moment. There's no doubt about that. Um, And the second aspect is the, the pension implications. You know, the longevity is increasing we have more and more older people in the population. So that implies a significant increase in the pension liability of the country. And indeed, the government tried to address that by raising the age of retirement, but uh, that was rejected by the political system. It ain't now going to happen. So what, what we're going to see is a lot of people reaching pension age and living for a long time, which will put further significant pressure on the um, the pension system. So th- there really is a huge, huge policy implication from the census. And that is we really do need to 
invest heavily in providing a proper health service and a proper um, care for older people service within the system. And I'm not saying for one moment that we just throw money at the problem because, you know, one of the problems with health, as in many other aspects of the public sector, is that uh, just because you throw more and money, at, more and more money at a problem doesn't necessarily mean you solve that problem. And in fact, you can exact, you can actually exacerbate the problem in some circumstances. So we really, really do need to see some strategic leadership here about the way we convert public expenditure inputs into outputs. Uh, the focus always tends to be on how much money we're spending. There never is enough focus on the output we're getting from that spending. In other words, value for money. Uh, but for, for anybody who doubts the severity of any of this, you'd need just look at some of the details of the pension last week, what they tell us about, number one, the growth in the population. Secondly, about the significant ageing of the population that's actually occurring. Okay. And, th- and I think that the demographic time bomb, which is present in Ireland, is present to a much greater extent in other countries. I mentioned Japan. Um, they're coping with it reasonably well, actually, in my opinion. China has got a big issue. Russia has a massive issue. Russia now has a declining population for obvious and not obvious reasons. Um, but uh, aging populations putting pressure on public services is is a huge issue. And here in the UK, for instance, we are going to have to be putting up taxes as the population ages to, to pay for uh, care commitments. So you're not alone, Jim, but I suspect you're further back in the queue of the demographic issues than, than we are. Which gives us more time to plan it and strategically prepare for what's happening. Bring on, uh, but, bring on the Sovereign Wealth Fund. Well, absolutely. But I, I, I guess my faith in the system to address these problems and have some sort of long-term strategic vision isn't very strong, I have to say. Um, but I, I hope I'm wrong. I hope these census findings will feed into policy, public policy making in a much greater way um, than you know has been the case for the last 20 years. I came across a report last week, as I mentioned in the introduction, from a publication called Eurofund. It's a report on uh, housing across the European Union. And um, the key conclusion is that there is unaffordable and inadequate housing in many European countries. Okay, the home ownership rate in Ireland um, has fallen from 70% in 2011 to 66% by 2022. Not not a dramatic collapse, but, but and nothing surprising about it because uh, with the difficulty for young people in the growing population to get on the housing ladder, it's clear that home ownership is going to fall. But here again, we ain't alone. Um, in a number of countries like Denmark, Cyprus, Lithuania, Finland, Bulgaria, to name a few, home, home ownership rates are declining by more than 3% per annum at the moment. Um, and there is a story across those countries where young adults and low-income groups are particularly struggling with housing. I say this because we, we just think we're the only ones with this problem in this country. And I'm not saying for one moment we don't have the problems. We do have the problems. Uh, but remarkably, many, many countries really, really do struggle with the delivery of housing. And we've discussed it many times. Um, you know, it certainly strikes me in this country. Anecdotally, you can see it. But the more and more people work in the area I talk to, the more you realise that one of the biggest problems here is that the planning system is totally dysfunctional. It is not fit for purpose. It's under-resourced. 
um, that's just one of the many problems it has. So if you don't have a properly functioning planning system, you are not going to deliver the type of housing supply that's required. And you can throw all of the budget surpluses you want at this problem. But unless you address fundamental issues such as the planning system, such as the nimbyism, which we've often spoken about, um, you're just going to be throwing good money after. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now. And we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas. You will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For bad. Yeah, yeah. Nimbyism and planning are huge issues here in the UK. As you say, these are common problems. We're not denying um, the extreme nature of the Irish housing problem. We're just pointing out that there are resonances elsewhere. And I can tell you, Jim, NIMBYism is so rife in the UK, uh, it really is holding holding things back. We are going to have to build. And there's a more general point, I think, about building um, in, an, in our economies. Um, we don't do it anymore. And we don't invest in ourselves in the UK, um, not just housing, but particularly housing. And we're going to have to, you know, find ways of using the land that we've got because there is a lot and there is a lot of land that we're not allowed to build on. And people get get into rows about the green belt. People get into rows about um, brownfield housing and uh, they claim that we can do all sorts of things with, with that. But at the end of the day, we've got to find out, find ways of building more houses in a cost effective way. Because, uh, as, as you say, the, the issue of, of land is important and land is such a huge component of the house cost equation. It's got to be made available through better planning, but it's also got to be made available at lower cost. And I don't think anybody has really figured that one out yet, have they? Uh, no, they certainly have not. And um, they, they've made efforts here to try and improve the viability uh, there's more stuff in the pipeline, but uh, the basic fact at the moment still is that the cost of delivery is very high. And as a consequence, the price of the final product is very high. And as a consequence of that, uh, we're just not building enough. You know, it, it, it's it's a never ending problem here. I, I mentioned in the introduction there that I've been intrigued by a debate that's been going on in Sydney in recent weeks. And I've been following it every morning on the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, a couple of weeks ago, the New South Wales Productivity Commissioner, um, a lovely title, he came out with statements about the Sydney's housing market. He said that Sydney's most affluent suburbs must become higher and denser to ease the city's housing affordability crisis. And he used the word crisis, not me. Um, and what he is suggesting is that 
Sydney needs to increase the average building heights in these affluent areas by three storeys. And he estimates that that will lower prices and could provide an extra 45,000 extra houses over the next five years. And and these are in sort of affluent areas where there is a pretty decent infrastructure and so on. So that is a fairly... A fairly dramatic statement. Um, and, and he said that basically there is a very sharp and painful trade-off between where people can afford to live um, versus the benefits of living near jobs, amenities and public transport hubs. So hence, you know, this is his suggestion. And the West Sydney, and I, I don't know Sydney now, but West Sydney, um, the suburbs where a lot of the building has been taking place, um, you know, he was arguing that that South Sydney West has been forced to take most of the burden of delivering adequate housing in Sydney. Um, and as I say, his answer to this is that um, the wealthier suburbs just need to build more houses, build up, increase density, etc. Well, can you the imagine reaction? Sa- can you imagine saying that about South County Dublin? Indeed, that's <laughs> that's why I'm here smiling to myself, Chris. Can you imagine? Uh, there, there will be civil war in that particular part of the city. And I, I actually don't think there is any public policy official in this country with the balls to come out and make a statement like that, uh, you know, particularly about some place like South County Dublin. But the, the reaction in Sydney to the Productivity Commission's comments has been pretty extreme as well. Um, the local politicians in these affluent areas are up in arms about it. They're basically saying that the failure of housing policy in Sydney is a failure to deliver proper amenities to make communities work and so on. Uh, So there is a a massive backlash going on to what he was saying. Uh, But I I say this again, um, probably to the point of boredom. Um, we have this notion, I pick it up from a lot of younger people who are traipsing to Australia in greater numbers at the moment, that Sydney and Australia particularly is just some sort of a nirvana. It's not. It is struggling with a huge housing crisis and uh, policymakers there are grappling with all of the sorts of issues that we discuss here in this country on an ongoing basis. And, you know, going back to the point I made a little bit earlier on, Chris, um, the inability of policymakers to actually deliver an adequate supply of housing of the right type in the right areas is quite staggering. Yeah, I'm reading a book at the moment by a English political commentator called Ian Dunt. You may have heard of him. Um, if you haven't, he's well worth following on Twitter and his own blogs and writings in various uh, formats and platforms. And he's written a book about, uh, I think the title is How Westminster Works. Um, And I think it probably is subtitled How Westminster Doesn't Work. And it's a fascinating book. I'm only halfway through it. But it explains a lot about the the mess that the British economy has got itself into generally. And why, uh, by implication, why the housing market never gets sorted out. Why these big problems, not just housing, never get sorted out. And very little in it would astonish you, but it's the depth of the issues that really would would has caused me to just you know be open mouthed in shock. Um, it, the, if you, you're old enough to remember a TV series called Yes Minister, the or Yes Yes Prime Minister, there were two TV series that really took the Mickey out of uh, the way Westminster works. It 
it, it's revealed in this book that that wasn't a comedy. That wasn't a, even a parody. It was a script for how Westminster actually works. It was a dis, an, an accurate description. And the fundamental, there are so many fundamental problems, but the key one here is short-termism, that nobody has the incentive because of the electoral cycle, because the way MPs and other local officials are selected, uh, the way in which their careers are progressed, the incentive mechanisms are all wrong. And I suspect similar uh, forces are at work in Ireland and elsewhere, that because housing and other related problems like health and the provision of public services generally require long-term strategic thinking, the incentive structures for politicians to do long-term strategic thinking just aren't there. And it's worse than that. It's that the incentive structures actually work against that. So they come in and they look for headlines rather than long-term solutions. Their, their tenure, you know, minister's tenure in office is very short. It's longer than any likely timescale that would solve the housing problem. If you're going to devise a set of policies to solve Ireland or indeed the UK's or anywhere else's housing problem, you're going to have to have a timescale that probably stretches across the length of two parliaments a decade, say. And no politician has that kind of timescale. Most politicians operate on a one to two year timescale at worst. At best, it's a full electoral cycle and it's rarely even that long. So unless we can find ways of changing the incentive mechanisms for, for politicians to actually take undertake proper strategic analysis, implement changes that their effects will only be felt after these politicians have long left the stage, these problems are going to remain. And that's the stark conclusion that I would reach. I guess, I guess that doesn't surprise you, Jim. But this book that I'm reading really lays it out in black and white in gruesome detail about why these huge societal problems don't get tackled. The structures that we have for governance of our economies, of our societies, just aren't there. It's, we're just not set up to solve problems that are going to require a long time frame and proper deep critical thinking to sort out. And so I would actually join you in your pessimism about our ability to actually do anything about this, sadly. And, and Chris, would you regard Singapore as an example of a state that actually does get it right? In certain respects, yes, because it, it doesn't have the, many of the problems of modern democracies because for prolonged periods in its history, it was an, an elected dictatorship, if you like. I apologise to any Singaporeans listening if I've mischaracterised their, their political system. But they, they've had... Um, for a long time, a, a leader, um, he's long gone now, um, I think he was called Lee Kuan Yew, who um, did, was around for a long time and they've all thought about things for a very, very long time. It was instructive that, you know, during the Second World War, the Americans suspended their term limits for their president because they required a long-term strategic thinker in office. And when you have these big problems that require long-term solutions, long-term thinking... Um, that was it's been recognised as long ago as that that you you simply do not we do not have the setup to to deal with it. So um, I, I'd be grateful for any listeners uh, to send in answers on a postcard or these days on an email about how we change our governance structures such that our elected representatives are told, listen, these problems are going to take ten years to solve. How are we going to incentivize you? to uh, come up with 10-year 
programs to resolve these problems because you ain't going to resolve them in 10 months, Jim. No way. Okay, Chris, um, we will leave it there. Uh, Good to talk again. Um, Housing, census, always topics of great interest with huge policy implications. So, um, listeners, any feedback or solutions, please contact us. Cheers. Thanks, Jim. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. 